The following sermon is a ministry of Hilton Head Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at hiltonheadpca.com. You know, as we come and we continue in this sermon series of looking at Jesus' sermon on the the sermon that Jesus preached as he was beginning his ministry, he gathered together his disciples that he had called, and then there was a broader group of those who were following him. Some were true followers of his, and they were leaning in because they really wanted to learn about the kingdom. Uh, others were just kind of interested in what was going on. He was uh, this new rabbi, and, and people were following him, and so they were kind of on the edge listening in. And that's what church is like every single week. There's some who are coming in every week and go, well, I'm really excited about this. I want to learn more. There's others who are kind of like, I'm just kind of interested in what's going on, uh, kicking the tires a, a little bit. And so, whatever group you're in this morning, I hope that you'll hear what God has to say to us and to you. You see, the Sermon on the Mount is an intricately woven tapestry of Jesus making a case and a presentation for his kingdom. He said, I'm the new king. I'm the true king. And I've arrived, and my kingdom is now established. And those who are part of my kingdom now are going to be living differently than what it's like to live in the Roman kingdom, live different than what it's like to even live in a Jewish kingdom, different than what it's like to live in a monarchy, a human monarchy, to different from what it's like to live in a 21st century American democracy, but that it's a totally different way of understanding the world and life. That it is, uh, it is as the old German and Dutch writers would say, it is a Belgian it is the, the worldview, it is everything that we understand, we understand it through the, the prism of the truth of Scripture and who God is. That, that we can't understand anything with, without uh, knowing this truth. And that we understand everything by knowing this truth. And so Jesus has been moving through, and we talked about last week with worry and anxiety, uh, that we weren't to worry because we but was both caring for us in his providence, that he is orchestrating all things together for our good and for his glory. But it's not just a mechanic faith. It, it is a beautiful, loving father who says he loves us and is doing that. So when you bring together the beauty of both providence and love, it makes for an incredible ability to sleep at night, to wake up in the day. And I hope this week that, as one writer put it, the birds were your theologians. And you looked at the birds this week and you went, there's a deep and a profound theology that they're not worried. And I don't have to be worried either. That the flowers of the field were your theologians this week. They were the deep, profound doctrine of looking and saying that God has beautifully arrayed them and made them uh, to not have to worry. And they're gone tomorrow. That, that those flowers that you bought today uh, for Mother's Day, and by the way, I made a large gifaw, didn't I, Matt? We didn't really mention that. We, that's the royal we. Yes, you're supposed to help me uh, remember Matt, that coming. Uh, that mothers, we want to honor you uh, today. Doesn't really go with my introduction to the sermon uh, and that, but I hope you got some flowers and you'll think deeply theologically about those flowers that you got today. And then when you go eat lunch, then you think about how God provides for you, and that we love you uh, in that. Some of you men are sitting around going, oh, no. <laughs> so, it's Mother's Day, by the way. I hope you remember that moms, we do want to honor you, and we hope that you are. 
are encouraged today. And for those of you who may be wanting to be moms and haven't been able to, for those of you who are moms and have lost a loved one, or those of you who have lost a mom, we pray that God's peace would be with you today. The beauty in all of these things, be it from these celebrations that come within our culture, we can trust that God has all of them and that he's caring for us. And now Jesus is moving us to this last section in chapter 7. It's going to be done in the next couple of weeks. And, and in this section, many as scholars say it's just sort of a hodgepodge. He was the prototypical pastor. If he gets near the end of the sermon, he goes, oh, shoot, I forgot this point and that point. And I wanted to make this illustration. So he threw them all in together in chapter 7. I doubt very seriously that the Lord of the universe did that. I doubt that Christ, in this sermon, all of a sudden got to the end and went, hmm. No, he was writing, and or he was preaching. It was written for us. And saying, listen, at the end of the day, there were only two kinds of people. There's the person who builds their house upon the rock. That they're going to listen to this sermon, and they're going to accept this sermon. Not my sermon, Christ's sermon. That they're going to accept the sermon of the king. They're going to accept the teaching of the kingdom. And they're going to bend their knee and give up all of their rights to their own kingdom. And they're going to come into his kingdom and establish their house upon a rock. And when the storms come, that that house won't be washed away. And then there's a second kind of person, and only another one kind of person. There's only two kinds of people. The person who builds their house on the rock, on the kingdom truth of Jesus Christ, and the person who rejects the truth of the Sermon on the Mount and the truth of the King, and they build their house upon the sand. Amen. And at the end of the day, when the judgment and the storm come, that their house will be blown away. That's what he's leading us to. He's saying we all live in the reality that this life is transient, that this life is not all that there is, that there is another life to come, there is another kingdom which is eternal, and that we need to live this life with an eye always to that kingdom, with a thought always to that kingdom, that it, that it governs every action that we do, that we recognize that the king sees all that we do. And some of you sitting here today are going, yeah, Bill, I hear you. I just can't believe these things are too hard to believe. The reality isn't that no one, that anyone can't believe. The reality is that many choose not to believe. And so the question becomes, will you today believe these truths? Will you today place your hope in something that is beyond yourself, your control, and place it in Christ, or will you reject it? That's really the only two positions. Because at the end of the day, none of us are going to stand before Jesus and go, I so wanted to believe in you. I tried and tried but I just couldn't. The reality is that what we'll do at the end of time is that some will stand before him and say, I still don't believe. And I never have. While others will say, wow, the beauty of my faith now is sight. And I get to come and enter into this eternal kingdom. That's what Jesus is talking about here. And so he's talking about building houses, as it were. Jesus is the ultimate picture of our God. He's coming into your life, your house, and moving through. And he's saying, we're going to do a full renovation. We started with the foundation, and we've established the foundation is no longer yourself. It's me. And now we're coming in, and we're checking all of the studs. We're checking all the drywall. We're checking all the flooring. We're checking the piping, the electrical. We're checking to see what all's going in, what's in the living room, what's in the dining room, what's in the kitchen, what's in the parlor, what's in the powder room. We're looking in the attic. We're looking in the secret chambers. 
We're looking all over the place. We're coming in and doing a full renovation uh, of your life. And we've come through and he said, we're going to talk about your prayer life. We're going to talk about your generosity. We're going to talk about how you deal with the world around you and divorce and love and all this kind of stuff. And today he comes to the room that we so love, but all of us say we don't have this room, but every one of us have this room. It's your judgmental room. It's the room that you sit in and you critique everything and everyone around you. It's the room that you come into and you go, well, that person's this and that person's that, and I'm not sure about that, and I'm better than that person. And we, we come and we do that. And Jesus is saying, here's where we're going we're gonna to sit and talk this week. It's about criticalness. It's about judgmentalism. It's about these things. And it's a plague, as it were, with culture. If you turn on the news, it's almost nauseating. It doesn't matter what news channel you turn on. <laughs> of the critique and the judgmental comes on both sides of the aisle towards the other, one country towards another. And it's bad enough in the world because we go, they're a dark world, they don't know Jesus, it's a pagan world, they're pagan news societies, they're all of this, they don't understand that. What really gets bad is when it comes into the church and we see criticism everywhere. We see it all around us. We find it in the most unique places. There was a young bachelor who was wanting to get married. So every time he brought a, a girl, a woman, home to his house, his mother would find some fault in it. She wasn't pretty enough. She wasn't smart enough. She didn't talk nice enough. She didn't do this, that, or the other. Incredibly critical. And so the young man was losing hope that he was ever going to be able to get married. And he asked a friend for help. And the friend said, here's what you need to do. Find a woman who's just like your mom. Somebody looked around. And he found a woman who looked like his mom who walked like his mom, same word inflections as his mom, same sense of humor as his mom, brought her home. Later he was talking to his friend, the friend said, how did my advice work for you? He said it was awesome. Mom loved her. Dad hated her. <laughs> There's criticism at every turn. And eventually you think you get one and somebody else is critical. And we look around and we go, it's just the world around us, but let me tell you, it's in the church. I'm a product of the church, meaning I was, I'm a child of the manse. My father was a pastor. I grew up in a parsonage. And I grew up around the dining room table listening to the criticism that my father would talk about in the church. The brokenheartedness that he had about the judgmentalism of Christians. Now, being a pastor, I'd like to say it's changed. But it hasn't. So we're incredibly critical. And it's, it's almost laughable if it wasn't so sad. I was at the gym recently and was working out and someone came and they said, hey, good to see you in the gym. I was like, yeah, it's good to be in the gym. I'm really sore right now because of that. I was enjoying being a donor to the rec center instead of a member. Uh, but he said, yeah, when we first started coming to the church, you looked pretty hefty. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> like, okay. You know, all right. There's a criticism. There's a criticalness of, hey, these are different cookies. These aren't the cookies of my childhood and my happiness. How is anybody going to hear the gospel if we have bad cookies? And if we have coffee out of a can? Oh, anathema in our culture today. And we're going to paint it this way. We're going to do it that way. There's a criticalness within the church. You see, some people in the church think that a critical spirit is a spiritual gift. 
They wear it as a badge of honor instead of as a scarlet letter of shame. Pride themselves in being able to point out all the people. But Jesus has something to say to all of us in the midst of that concern. I was reading in Nehemiah last week when Ezra brought the word out and read it to the people. But all the people stood in front of the word. And so this morning I invite you to stand as we hear God's word read to us. I'm going to tell you, when I do this, that actually means stand up. <laughs> Some of you are looking around going, who's going to be first in there? It's okay to stand when we say stand together. But now hear the very word of the Lord preserved for us, for our encouragement, our teaching, our rebuke, and everything else. Matthew chapter 7. Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce you will be judged, and with the measure you use it, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, but there's a log in your own eye? You're a hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is, what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot. This is the word of the Lord. May he have blessed to the reading to the hearing of God. And so as we come to this passage now, we're in the room in our home, so to speak, dealing with judgmentalism, a critical spirit, a critical nature. Jesus is going to give us three things that we're going to consider together uh, today. He's going to give us a warning, an expectation, and an instruction. He's giving us warnings, expectations, and instructions. And so first, the warning. The warning is simply this. Do not take judging others lightly. It is a serious matter. Do not take judging others lightly. It is a serious matter. Jesus begins this section with an incredibly stern warning, and it should be heeded. It's almost as if he starts this section and there is a massive blowback that it comes and it hits and it is absorbed within the, the chest of the hearer when he says, judge not, lest you be judged. And the measure with which you judge others will be measured out uh, against you. Jesus is saying this very simply. I take judging others, I take a critical spirit, I take that judgmental spirit very seriously, and if I take it very seriously, so should you. He's saying to us, folks, we need to deal with this matter. It is of critical importance, and yet we find that it is not one of the great concerns of the church today. Paul, when he was writing in Romans, he picked up on this theme. He picked up on this truth in Romans 14, the first four verses. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him. But not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who eats. Do you see what's happening there? The guy with the big porterhouse steak is looking at the vegetarian and going, man, what a weak and pathetic person. And the vegetarian's going, man, what a weak and pathetic person. And so you have people 
Within the church, looking at each other, judging one another, being critical uh, over what's on the plate. And Paul says, let not the one who eats despise me. He moves on and he says, who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls. And he will be upheld for the Lord is able to make him stand. Paul writes again in Romans chapter 2, the first five verses. Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself. Because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O oh man, that you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and his patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. We can just sort of pause there. And it's done silently. Because Paul is saying, oh, the hypocrisy of the church. We stand and we clamor about and then we talk about all these sins. We love to hear sermons and to preach and to get on Facebook and social media about uh, abortion or about same-sex marriage or about the big things out there, but you don't see anybody upset about the hypocrisy in the church, the lack of generosity within the church, the lying that goes on within the church. All of those things, those are fine. And Paul is saying we should be considering all of these things and be careful. It's sad so often that you'll find even in pulpits that the pastor who is banging away week after week after week on the same subject is so often guilty of that very subject. But that we judge out of our sense of guilt, that we ourselves are overwhelmed with a particular sin, and so we come out of it judging others very harshly for the very sin that we find in ourselves. James wrote this in 3.1, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that he that we who teach will be judged with a greater strictness. People going, I want to teach, I want to be a leader, I want to be this, and my response is reaching everyone. There is a judgment, and there is a sense of care that we need to take. I wonder, did anybody today, let's see if we'll have a poll here, did any of you today pray this prayer so far? God, judge me as I judge my fellow person around me today. Amen. Why not? God, judge me based on the exact same criteria that I'm going to judge everybody that I come in contact with today. What a crazy prayer. But that's what Jesus is saying, and Paul is saying, and James is saying, and be very careful. Judgment, judging others, is a massively important issue. And the reason that the church has such a little voice in our culture is that we love to bang on the big drums, but we don't deal with little things. Because we think they're little things, and Jesus is saying they're actually condemnable and damnable things. He's saying we need to deal with these things to remove from the world around us one playing card. We can't take the whole deck right now, but we can at least pull one playing card, and that is this. We're going to be really honest about our sin. What would happen in the world around us if we were really honest about our sin? I was with somebody not too long ago who wanted to talk about the church. And they were talking to me about the church like this. 
because they were junk. You wonder why the world doesn't respect us? So we want to talk about moral issues while we're breaking God's moral law. And Jesus is saying, hey, this is important stuff. This is important stuff. One writer put it this way, there is nothing more ungodly than a critical spirit and nothing more unchristlike than false righteousness that is always looking for something wrong in someone else. One of the best ways to feel good about yourself is to look at somebody else and find fault in them. You drive better than them, I'm sure. You dress better than them, I'm sure. I went and watched a little bit of the soccer game for Christian Academy yesterday up in Charleston. It was amazing. The entirety of the stands were filled with people who were better officials than the officials on the field. <laughs> Everyone had a PhD in how to call that game. We're all there. I'm there. I'm the father. I was there on the sideline. Not this year, but I have been before. Paul writes this in 2 Corinthians 5. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Therefore, knowing the fear of God, we persuade that what we are known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it's known also to your conscience. Paul's saying we're going to stand in account. So with that, we're going, okay, where's this sermon going? Because it seems... That Jesus has just said, don't judge, ever. But no, what he's saying is don't be judgmental in a wrong spirit. He's saying take judgment very seriously. Give it a great deal of thought. Because that is the warning. And it's a big warning, by the way. Then he moves into the expectation. And then it's a big expectation. And here's the expectation. We're still expected to make judgments. We're still expected to make judgments. Careful not to misuse this verse. It is used regularly like this. Judge not. I'm not supposed to judge. Who am I to judge that person? That's their life. That's their lifestyle. That's their stuff. And then we use my favorite horrible statement. Well, it is what it is. Well, of course it is. What else could it be? It is what it is. Yes, but what if it is wrong? What if it is morally incorrigible? What if this person is standing in a wrong place? We're just supposed to be, it is what it is. They're in the middle of 278 and a semi-truck is coming. It is what it is, yes. But if you have the ability to say, don't stand in front of the semi-truck, we should speak. We should judge. We should engage our higher critical faculties to be able to, with great discernment, fulfill what Christ is calling us to do here. You see, too many people living in this morally and culturally relative society that can't call anything anything. You, you, you can't call black black and white white and green green and blue blue. That you can't say this, you can't say that. Uh, it's amazing having a son coming back from a university this year, uh, from a university that prides itself in the state of North Carolina as one of the most open and um, uh, accepting universities in all of North Carolina. I look at him and he's trying to talk. He's like, oh, I can't say that word. Can't say that word. Can't say that word. Bill, he looks at me and he's dad, you can't say that. Why can't I say that? Is it because we live in a world that just says everything has to be okay? We can't speak. And Jesus is saying, no, I still expect you to go find specs in your brother's He's saying, first, deal with your log, but I still expect you to go find specs. That's what he's saying there. 
you hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then do nothing. No, he's saying, first take the log out of your own eye, then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. The expectation is that we're still looking for specks in our brothers and sisters' eyes. That we're still there helping them, because guess what? If you let a speck stay in your eye for too long, you will go blind. It will destroy your eye. One of the things I learned in the Gambia when I was just over there with this medical mission trip is that these people, and many of them, are going blind because they don't have visine. They don't have simple lubricant for their eyes, and they get a piece of dirt in their eye, a little speck, and over time, it scratches and scratches and scratches. The eye starts to cover it up. It grows into a callus and to a cornea and to something that eventually they will be blind. When all someone had to do was come and say, let me help get the speck out of your eye. Jesus is talking about that culture. The culture of the Gambia is his culture, dry, dusty culture. And he understood what a speck could do over time. He said, so we're still in, in the, the job of coming and, and of judging. Because a little later on. Right? He says, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Be able to discern. Be able to judge right versus wrong. Be able to say, you're a wolf in sheep clothing. Be able to say that and to know that. In John, he says these words in John 7, 24. Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. He's still saying judge. We still have to make discerning, critical thoughts and decisions. All of this should lead us to ask one huge question. If judging others is such a big deal, and it has some bearing on me eternally, I'm afraid to engage in it, but yet Jesus is telling me that I'm supposed to engage in it, but supposed to engage in it in a way that he uh, is telling me the only reasonable question becomes what? How do I do it? All right, Jesus, how do we do this? How in the world am I supposed to do this? And he would say, great question. That leads to the third point, the instruction. And he gives us a couple of things that we'll touch on very briefly for this one. How do we judge from a biblical perspective? Why do we see the speck in your your brother's eye, but do not notice the law that is in your own eye, or how can you say to your brother, let me take the back out of your eye, when there is a law in your own eye, you think of it, first take the law in your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye, but do not give dogs what is un- what is holy, and do not throw your pearls, lest they trample them underfoot and turn and attack you. What Jesus is saying is this, we need to know what to do and how to do it. And the first thing he says, and the one I'll spend the most time on, is to judge others without hypocrisy. That we are to judge, but we're to remove hypocrisy from it. And that he's saying there is a way to do that. And the way to do that, John Piper put it this way, we have to approach this with scripture-saturated, spirit-dependent humility. That we have to come to God's word, and we have to know and shaped by his word, our minds renewed by his word, and then we are coming in dependent upon the Holy Spirit to lead us and guide us and direct us with great humility. He says that the aim of this passage is to overcome the blindness of our pride to keep us from being lovingly helpful to our brother. That's the point of the passage. This text is not simply about creating non-hypocrites who don't care about their brothers who fall into the ditch 
because he is being blinded by the speck in his eye. This passage about how to become helpful, how to become loving, how to become effective eye doctors who will help other people see and live and enjoy God's will for their lives. But this is about one another. This is about Jesus saying, I want to help you live together. I want to help you become more loving so that when you engage someone and you see a speck in their eye, that you can have a platform upon which to stand and engage it. And that they won't be repelled. And then they won't turn on you, is what he says there in the last verse of this section. And so Jesus is saying that this is the first thing that we need to do. He's saying that you who are spiritual are the ones who need to do this. That's Galatians 6.1. If anyone is caught in any transgression, if anyone has a speck in their eye, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch over yourself. Interesting. You who are spiritual, you who are mature, who is that? That is the follower of Jesus Christ who is growing. You're to restore them in a spirit of gentleness. You're to look and discerningly be able to say, hey, what I'm seeing, I, I think I see a speck on your eye. And here's why I think there's a speck on your eye. Because I'm watching it lived out this way. I'm watching this particular behavior. I'm watching this emotional effort. I'm watching this going on in your life. And I'm seeing it, and in my spiritual discernment of praying to the Lord for wisdom of what is going on, I'm finding this in you. And I'm approaching you, and I'm letting you know this about me. I've got logs sticking out of my eye. I'm not above you. I'm not beneath you. I'm walking with you, and I've dealt with my log first. I've looked and I've asked God, show me anything in my life that may keep me from being able to come towards my sister or towards my brother. Would you point out to me this thing that is so glaring to everybody else, but it's not glaring to me? Just think of the visual picture. you got a log sticking out of your eye. I mean, if you wanted to draw that, and then this person with this massive log sticking out of their eyes coming up and going, hey, you got a speck in your eye. What would you do to that person? I mean, visualize it for a second. You're like, dude, you have a log in your eye. What are you talking to me about specs? But Jesus says that's exactly how you all live. And we live. We live with logs in our eyes. And we walk around going, I'm good. You good with Jesus? I'm great. He's like, deal with your logs. That takes incredible humility. And the way that you learn about the logs in your own eye, by the way, we give you some homework today, maybe after lunch. Don't get mom at lunch on this one. Sit around and go, what do I have sticking out of my eye? What do I not see about myself that everybody else can see? But I'm blind to. I need you to help point it out. Ask the Holy Spirit to point it out. Try and search me, know me, know what's going on in me, Lord. And then as we root those out, we come and we receive the mercy of Christ uh, in our own repentance and forgiveness. Then we're able to approach the other person. And we're able to say to them, hey, I've got stuff in my eye. Think of it this way. Let's pretend there was a husband and a wife who were in a disagreement. And 99% of the problem was the wife's. Which is soon as possible anywhere in the universe. The way that that is going to be resolved isn't the husband saying, hey, babe, 99% on you. I'm waiting. Whenever you're ready to repent, all ears. Whenever you're ready to admit that you're wrong, I'm ready to be gracious and forgiving.
God tells that work, by the way. It never worked well for me in 27 years of trying. But here's how this principle works. Even if, let's say, I'm only responsible for 1%, I'm treated as if I'm responsible for all of it. I view this back as a law. And I take ownership of it. And I approach the other person with incredible humility. Humility is the key to engaging with other people. And friends, if folks aren't coming towards you, if folks aren't coming towards you with their specs, with their problems, with their stuff, there's probably a reason that you need to find out why. It's probably because you got logs sticking out of your eye, but you have a PhD in pointing out their specs. Jesus says, first and foremost, we need to get this log spec analysis thing down path. And we need to begin to move towards one another with the lack, with no hypocrisy in the middle of it. Second thing he says, you gotta be really quick. The second thing he says about this instruction is, yes, you can do it without hypocrisy, and the way that we do it without hypocrisy is we remove pride, we recognize, and we own our sin as greater than anybody else's sin. We recognize that it's our specs, by the way, and logs that sent Christ to the tree. And in that incredible humility, we're able to approach another person, and we're able to say, listen, I'm no perfect person, but I do see this, and I love you enough to point it out. And that's the second point. I love you enough. Always be loving in your engagement. When you begin to do a little bit of spec work in someone else's eye, make sure that you're doing it from a place of love and care, not from a place of harshness and of judgment. Jesus uses this word three times, brother. He's saying it's family. Some of you are going, yeah, my family hates each other. A true godly family should that, that we love one another, who would never want harm to come to our beloved. That we see the speck in their eye, and we're brokenhearted because of the speck in their eye, and we approach them with great humility and tenderness and love, and, and say, I love you in this way. I want to come because I have your best in mind. I have the best for the church in mind. I have what's best. It's putting together Isaiah 42, which Christ was fulfilling in his ministry. When he said, Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon you, him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench. And so he brings justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. We're to engage others in the same way. Smoldering, quick, a bruised reed. That we engage some of us in our counseling ministries, it's like we carry two bodies. That you come in and it's, it's scorched earth. Jesus saying, Come in, speak justice, speak truth, but do it in a way that is so gentle that it's restorative in nature. It's convicting. But restorative, because that's the whole hope, is to restore the person in Christ. When we move towards another person in this process of spec analysis and removal, please check your motives. If it's something other than love, then pause. If it's something other than love, pause in the middle of that. And the, third, the third instruction to give is to be discerning with your judgment and criticism. Be discerning. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs.
pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack them. Yes, Jesus is calling them pigs and dogs. That's what he called them. But what he's really saying in there is this. We have to be discerning in how we engage another person. What do they need? What do they want? What, what is it about them that we need to, uh, to do? Uh, that there's no mechanical manner to do this. It has to be nuanced for the individual that we're dealing with. And that we must give them what they're able to handle in a way that is attainable and digestible. That's what he's saying. You don't give pearls. You don't give these things that they can't digest. Those are good things. But he's saying you have to come and engage at a level that they can understand that's actually going to be practical and useful for them because if you give something that they don't need, it says that they turn on you by their nature and they come. It's a wonder if that's why our culture turns on the church so much. Because we're not giving our culture what our culture needs. We're giving them statements and and all of these platitudes and, and instead of discerning what do they need in the world around us and they turn the pig is expecting corn husks and it gets pearls it doesn't mean that the pearl is it just means that, that the pig can't handle you see jesus is saying know your audience know the person you're dealing with so what do we do with all of this i guess the first thing we would do is simply pause consider am i a critical person Am I a judgmental person? Ask yourself that. And be honest with the answer. It's going to hurt, by the way, if you are. No one likes to be uh, judgmental, be shown to be at fault in these things. And if that's the case, repent. Own it. Repent. Turn from it. And then as you're beginning to look at other people, the most loving thing you can do is to engage in <coughs> and truthfully, not to not engage in we see things happening within the life of people in the church, and we look the other way. And Jesus is saying, I've placed you on a wall, and you are the guard, and you are the one who's looking out, and there is enemy coming in, and we're to protect the wall. We're to be the herald who says, King And there's a spectacle, and that spectacle could become fatal. So, with all of this, he's not saying don't, don't judge at all. He's saying judge rightly. And do it in a manner that brings glory to the kingdom. The following sermon is a ministry of Hilton Head Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at hiltonheadpca.com.